Alrighty, so we're going to jump into session five of our series of understanding the gospel. Um, and like I said, tonight's part of it is that man is sinful. Um, so before we do that, just because of the weight of it, I know we prayed a minute ago, but I can just pray one more time. Um, just want to pray to make sure we ready our hearts um, for this topic. Father, as we come before you now, Lord, we recognize that certain themes of scripture, certain truths are heavier than others. Some are comforting, some are troubling, and some are downright terrifying. Lord, today, as we look at the reality that man is sinful, therefore deserving of your judgment, we, we tread carefully, Lord, as we approach this topic of your divine justice and wrath and sending us to hell, Lord, apart from Christ. So, Father, I pray for open hearts, open ears, tender hearts. And I pray, Lord, that whether we know you as Savior or not, that we don't just tune out here, but that we recognize the reality and the seriousness of, the, of, this, uh, of this subject matter. Go before us now, Lord, in the power of your Holy Spirit. Take truth planted in our hearts, Lord, and may my words be pleasing in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen. So Mark Twain, the famous author, was once quoted as saying, go to heaven for the climate, but go to hell for the company. People kind of laugh and snicker. Um, but if if I really take a moment to think about what it is that Mark Twain is saying, go to heaven for the climate, go to hell for the company, I get really sad. And the reason I get sad is because it really highlights how careless people have become when we talk about eternal realities and eternal destinations. Rather than trembling at the topic of hell, we have trivialized this is such a place that the word hell is nothing more than a curse word. But my prayer is that by the time we end our time together, um, that we wouldn't speak so carelessly of hell. You know, thus far we've seen that God is the sovereign creator of all things, including us. We've seen that God is holy and righteous. And because we've seen that God is holy and righteous, we know that God cannot allow or permit any sin. To do so would be to contradict his nature. And so it's right for God to justly punish sin. If God did not punish sin, he wouldn't be God. He's simply displaying who he is when he punishes it. But we've also seen during this series of understanding the gospel that each and every one of us are sinners by nature. We're born sinners, and then our actions simply evidence that reality. And so if we look at God's holy and righteous nature, we look at our sinful nature, then we have to do some math here and rightly see that every single one of us deserves God's just punishment for sin. We rightly deserve God to send us to hell for all eternity. Now, that's not a popular message, 
but it's a true one. And, you know, I can imagine some people saying, well, you know what, I'm just going to work harder and sin less. I'm just, I'm just going to try to stop, to sin, stop sinning. But there's two problems with that. You can't just stop sinning. One, because you were born a sinner by nature. It's in your DNA. You love your sin and you can't stay away from it. By nature, if sin is put on this side and righteousness is put on this side, you will always run to sin. Secondly, even if you could say, stop sinning right now, you've already sinned. And so you already deserve hell. And so you're rightly condemned and there's nothing you can do by yourself in yourself to wipe away your sin, to cleanse yourself because you're a sinner by nature. Actually, the more you try to fix yourself up and cleanse yourself from sin on your own, the more you actually end up sinning. It's like a child with dirty hands and the more they try to clean themselves off, the more they're just spreading the filth. So as a result, the just declaration of God is that every human being born deserves eternal separation from God in hell. And in today's culture, that's so difficult to swallow because people see themselves as fundamentally good. They don't think they're that messed up. They don't consider themselves evil. They don't consider themselves hell deserving. They don't consider themselves as sinners as much as, well, I'm, I'm a pretty good person, but I make mistakes. And so the doctrine of hell seems cruel and it seems outdated. But the late theologian J.I. Packer, I think, captured this really well when he wrote, the revelation of hell in scripture assumes a depth of insight into divine holiness and human and demonic sinfulness that most of us do not have. The reason hell is such a hard topic for us to accept, believe, to swallow is because we have such a low understanding of the holiness of God and the sinfulness of man. And so we're going to try to, to wrap our minds around this, but it's going to take the spirit of God to give us insight and to truly understand it the way it ought to be understood. But the first thing we have to come to grips with is that hell is real. It's not a figment imagination. You now people say, you know, hell's in your mind. You know, your mind is your own hell. You're trapped. You, you create your own hells. No, hell is real. Hell is a place. There is nothing more terrible than hell. It is the most terrifying and grim reality that we can ever imagine. And so let's look at some passages and see what God's word has to say about hell. And so the first thing I want us to see is that hell is described as a place of fire and darkness. So turn with me in the New Testament to the book of Jude. We're going to look at Jude verse 7 and verse 13. Jude 7 says, Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in 
gross immorality and went after strange flesh are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Verse 13, wild waves of, sea, of the sea casting up their own shame like foam, wandering stars for whom the black darkness has been reserved forever. It is a place of fire. It is a place of darkness. Now we get to look at the fact that also hell is described as a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth. Interestingly, most of those descriptions come on the lips of the Lord Jesus Christ himself. It's funny, people say that Jesus was this loving individual, the way the culture portrays him. But Jesus spoke on hell probably more than any other topic in the New Testament. He spoke more of hell than of his love. So let's look at what our Lord has to say. Go to the gospel according to Matthew. And in Matthew, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 8. And in Matthew chapter 8, we're going to look at verse 12. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into the utter darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Darkness, weeping, gnashing of teeth. Go a couple chapters ahead to Matthew 13 now. Matthew chapter 13, verse 42. And we'll throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Verse 59. Never mind, not verse 59, sorry. Go to uh, Matthew 22, chapter 22. Sorry. Verse 13. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot and throw him into the utter darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Matthew 24, verse 51. And will come in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then Matthew 25, 30. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Do you see this? This is Jesus talking. The Jesus that our nurseries portray with open arms, big blue eyes, a smile, and flowing blonde hair, is talking time and time again about casting the individual into the darkness where there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus is warning us. Hell is also described as a place of destruction. So now let's go to the book of 2 Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter one, verses seven through nine. 
to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. You go to Second Peter. Chapter three. Verse seven. But by his word, the present heavens and earth are being reserved for fire, kept for the day of judgment and destruction of ungodly men. Our first Thessalonians going back again. Chapter 1, verse 3. Actually, never mind. That's the wrong, that's the wrong reference. Got somebody trying to read all my handwriting here. Hell is beyond what we can imagine. We've seen it's a place of fire, a place of darkness, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, a place of destruction. But there's one more description of hell that we need to understand, and it's it's a place of torment. So go to the gospel according to Luke. Chapter 16. Luke chapter 16. Verse 23. In Hades, he lifted up his eyes, being in torment, and saw Abraham far away and Lazarus in his bosom. Did you catch that? Hades, a place of torment. And then Revelation chapter 20, verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone, where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. If we really think about those verses and think about what is being described, it really should cause us to to kind of sit quietly and realize That's what I deserve. But for the grace of God, that's what everybody deserves. You go outside, you walk up your block, you drive around the the streets. That's what every single human being you cross deserves. Now, the question when we hear those descriptions is, is that literally what it is? Maybe it's symbolic. Maybe it's not literal. It's possible. If it's symbolic, that should scare us all the more. Because then that means that the reality of hell is far beyond our imagining and human language is trying to grasp at what it could be. But human language still falls short of describing hell. And if it is literal, it's terrifying enough. Hell is 
a place completely absent, completely devoid of anything good. There is not a drop of goodness, of love, of grace in hell. It is living in a world without color. Now, some people have the wrong idea that hell is separation from God. That's not entirely true. Some people think by that that God is somehow not present in hell. But if we were to look at Psalm 139, we read this. Psalm 139, verse 8. If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. See, in hell, it's not that God isn't present in hell. It isn't that somehow you're separated from God to never see him in hell. Rather, God is present in hell, but the only aspect of God you see is the unrestricted fullness of his holy wrath and judgment. So it is separation from the goodness, the grace, the love, the mercy of God, and it is the full deluge of the holy wrath and judgment of God. Hebrews 12, 29 describes him as an all-consuming fire. That is the God you encounter in hell. Jonathan Edwards said this about men in hell. Wicked men will hereafter earnestly wish to be turned to nothing and forever cease to be that they may escape the wrath of God. This is the place that is reserved for every human being who has not been reconciled to God. I have family members who do not walk with Christ. That's where they have have a one-way ticket right there. There's no purgatory. There's no working off your debt while you're there. Once you're there, you're there forever. And so that's hell. So understanding what hell is and that it's real, that it's a place that God has created, that hell is a place where you feel his full wrath and unrestricted, unrestrained judgment. We can now talk about the sinner in hell. So how does that relate to us now? I think the first thing we have to take understand is that the punishment for the sinner, the punishment of hell for the sinner, is a just punishment. And so let's look at some verses. The first one will be Psalm 98. In Psalm 98, verse 9, it says, Before the Lord... For he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with equity. And so man is sinful. God is just. God is righteous. God comes to judge the earth. And what does a righteous judge decree of sinful man? They're guilty and that they are hell deserving. And that is a just sentencing. The punishment 
truly does fit the crime. We go to the book of Romans and the apostle Paul says this in Romans chapter three, verses five through eight. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? The God who inflicts wrath is not unrighteous, is he? I'm speaking in human terms. May it never be, for otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if through my lie, the truth of God abounded to his glory, why am I still being judged as a sinner? And why not say... As we are slanderously reported, and some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may come. Their condemnation is just. Their condemnation is just. People sometimes think it's unfair that God would send people to hell. You know, let, let's just put it in terms that will pull more at our human heartstrings. Imagine... Teenage, young, young boy, young woman, teenager. Pretty moral kid. Hasn't, you know, done anything crazy, not living out there, not caught up in drugs and running the streets. Pretty good kid by our standards. They're outside and they get hit by a car. They get rushed to the ER and they die. The kid, though, was very openly an atheist. 13-year-old atheist, lived a pretty moral life by our standards, dies in a car accident. We have such a hard time believing that God would send that 13-year-old to hell. Why? Again, because we think that we're fundamentally good. And so we think the idea of God sending that 13-year-old to hell is somehow unjust. But again, this goes back to not understanding that God is holy and man is not. And we don't understand the worth of God. I think this is the, why we think the punishment is not just, because we don't understand the worth of God. And so I've used this illustration before, but I think it always is a good one. If I were to go up and punch a homeless man in the face, I might get arrested. I might even be there overnight. But now if I were to go up and punch the president in the face, the Secret Service might just shoot me dead. The, my punishment will be far greater for hitting this, the, the president than hitting the homeless man. Why? Because of the value and worth of the office the president holds. So now let's take the one who is infinitely valuable, infinitely worthy, the one in whom all things hold together, and I spit in his face day after day after day with every thought, with my deeds, with my desires. Is it now so unjust for him to send me to hell? No, because the punishment is equal to the worth and excellency of the individual. And God is infinitely worthy, infinitely excellent. And so therefore the punishment must be infinite in nature. And that punishment, like we've been saying is hell. If we go to the gospel of Luke chapter 12, verse five, Jesus uh, says this, but I will warn you whom to fear. Fear the one whom after he has killed has the authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. 
That's Jesus. We really need to come to grips with the fact that it isn't the God of the Old Testament that's the cranky, wrathful one and that Jesus somehow the fun-loving hippie one. No, this is Jesus saying, fear the one who will throw your soul into hell. That's the punishment. Now, this punishment, like I said earlier, involves being excluded from the presence of God, but excluded from the goodness, that presence of God. All that is good in God that man can delight in, there will be no delighting in God in heaven and in hell because they will have no capacity. All the grace will be withheld. Again, Matthew chapter 7, verse 23 says, And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. See, on that day when you die, or Christ returns and cracks the sky, you don't put your resume in front of him of what you've done good and how you think you've earned your way. You have done nothing but spit in the face of holy God your entire life. Your only chance of getting in is Christ, and we will cover that in weeks to come. And so if you do not have that ticket, that is Christ's righteousness, when you appear before God, the words you will hear is, depart from me, I never knew you. He wants no part of relationship with you. Later on in Matthew's gospel in chapter 22, verse 13. Again, we read this earlier. Then the king said to the servants, bind him hand and foot, throw him to the outer darkness. That outer darkness, that place where you can't be seen. You're bound hand and foot. And as you sit in that outer darkness with weeping, gnashing of teeth, with fire, with not one drop of the grace, goodness, love, and mercy of God, you realize you'll be there forever. It's an eternal punishment. In Matthew 25, verse 46. These will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. See, the minute you die, your soul crosses into eternity. And so you're either going to live eternally in righteousness and goodness with God, or you will live eternally in the torments of hell. There are no other options. It would be nice to think when you die, you cease to exist. That's it. Some evangelicals, some Christians even try to say, well, you know what? It's, it's just annihilationism. When you die, your soul is completely annihilated and ceases to exist. That might even be, that's a great option. It's just not a biblical one. You don't cease to exist. You exist eternally in hell. Again, to read Revelation 20, verse 10 again. Ooh. 
And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Think about what that sounds like. Think about always suffering, even suffering in this life. The worst suffering you can have in this life, you know, at some point it's going to end. Even if, maybe that's death, maybe that's whatever it is. All suffering on this side of eternity has, a, has an ending point. And so to some degree, we're able to endure and withstand suffering in this life. But this is a suffering that has no end. It goes on and on and on. Because we were always created to be eternal creatures in eternal delightment, enjoyment, praise, and worship of God. But we have foregone that. We said, nope, not going to do that. And so now we are eternally in that place. Now let's spend the last few minutes here talking about the fact that as horrible as hell sounds, as unjust as it sounds, people can be like, man, that is so cruel of God to do. I want to make perfectly clear that hell is something that the wicked have chosen for themselves. If you decide to live your life in rebellion to Christ, you have chosen hell for yourself. You purchased those VIP tickets. Jesus talks about how they men have preferred the darkness to the light. Think about the words you live, the world you live in. What do people run after? Right? Think about the people you know. Just think about humanity as a whole. Where do they run to? What do they listen to their music? What do they watch with their eyes? Where do they spend their pleasures? We live in a hyper-sexualized world perverting God's goodness. Drunkenness is looked at as that's how you spend a Friday night. We've legalized marijuana because getting high is a good thing now. You hear teenagers and you hear parents of teenagers saying, well, you know, they need to sleep around because they need to figure out what they like before they get married. Think about the, the music you watch, I mean, the music you listen to with, with the cursing and the, and, the, and the sexualized lyrics, the movies we watch, with, right? The hookup culture, how our language, right? People just curse all the time. It's, it's not even, nobody even bats an eye. I saw a video. It was like this little two-year-old girl just cursing, but because her voice sounded cute, everybody's laughing about it. It was somehow cute that the child's cursing, right? This idea of getting all the money you can, even if you have to step on people in the process. Just think about everything our culture promotes. Men love the darkness rather than the light. That's all it is. It says in John chapter one, verse five, the light, meaning Christ, shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. So darkened are we to what is good and true and righteous 
that when the light, when Christ, when goodness stands in front of us, the world doesn't even understand. It's amazing. Um, if, you, if you watch, if you read books like Jane Eyre, you watch the movies and you just see the differences in dynamics, how men and women were around each other back then versus now. Back then, if the gentleman's hand just brushed across the girl's hand, she would blush and get flustered, right? And we see them, we think it's sweet and we think it's romantic. Now, how do you flirt? By sending nudie pictures to each other in our culture. By having apps to hook up simply for sexual relations. We don't understand nothing of light. We don't comprehend it. You show most people a Jane Eyre movie today, I read the book, and they look at you like, wow, that's so Victorian prude. Because they lost the innocence of it. There, there would be, you couldn't rewrite the Scarlet Letter in today's culture. It would just be the norm. On top of that, people, not only have they chosen the darkness over the light, and they don't comprehend the light of goodness of, of God, but they've chosen to not fear God. See, nobody's a victim of sin. In Romans chapter 3, verse 18, it says, there is no fear of God before their eyes. And that's in verses 10 through 18 is where Paul is making the case of what is true of all humanity. And see, this is chiefly the problem. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so they choose to live in rebellion to God. Well, if you won't fear God in this life, I guarantee you, you're going to have to second thoughts about that in the, in the life to come. But again, they're not victims. They've chosen to not fear him. And in Romans chapter one, verse 18, it says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. Here it is. Who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. See, humanity has chosen to suppress the truth of God. When if you suppress the truth of God, then you will be thrown into hell and all of heaven will rejoice. Also in Romans, you go to verse 25, we see, for they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, what Romans 1 is doing, it's making very clear that there is no such thing as an atheist. That every single human knows that there is a God in there to serve him. But they have chosen to do otherwise. They've chosen to serve themselves, to serve the creation, rather than to serve God. And as a result, when you die, the judgment is just. Hebrews 9.27 says, it is appointed for a man to die once and then the judgment. That's inescapable. I, you know, people say, well, I don't believe in God. You will. You will. You will bow the knee to Christ. It says every tongue will confess and every knee will bow that Jesus Christ is Lord. So people have chosen darkness over light. People have chosen to not fear God. People have chosen to suppress the truth of God. People have chosen to worship the creation rather than the creator. And then Romans 132, I'll end here. They've encouraged they encourage other people to sin against God. Romans 132. And although they know the ordinance of God, 
that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. How disgusting is it that not only do people live in rebellion against God, that people consume sin daily, but then they try to actively recruit others to do the same. Is there any more, does any more need to, is that at the height of it all? Recruiting others to sin with you, to applaud when you see people choosing darkness over light. You see it all the time. I'm no stranger that I used to live. Obviously, I, most of you know I was an atheist for a long time. And I pursued depravity at every turn. And there were times where something that conscience, right? Because we all know that the Lord exists. There were times that I just felt like ah, I need to stop doing this. But what do you do at that moment when the conscience begins to prick, when, the, when God is awakening you to, to the degree of your sin? The easiest way to shut out that voice is to recruit others to just keep sinning with you. And so hell is something that those who have chosen to not bend the knee to Christ have chosen for themselves. There isn't, no one is in hell because they were a victim. They chose that lot. And so we've seen tonight that man is sinful and that God's judgment to send him to hell is just. We've seen that hell is a place of fire, of darkness, of weeping, of gnashing of teeth, of torment. We've seen that hell is eternal and lasts forever. And that God is good to cast the wicked to hell. I once heard a preacher, and it startled me the first time he said it. I once heard a preacher say that if his children chose to not follow Christ, and the day of judgment came, and he was brought into the kingdom of God and given his glorified state. And in his glorified state, he was given eyes to see God for who he really is and sin for what he really is. And his children were thrown into the depths of hell for all eternity that he and all of heaven would stand up and applaud. I was like, you're telling me that I'm going to applaud if my children were thrown into hell. And then I thought about it for a moment. I put my emotions aside and I said, wait a minute. In that glorified state, I get to see God's beauty and holiness for what it really is. I get to see hell for what it really is, which means I will see my children really as the enemies of God that they really are because they chose to not repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And I realize, yeah, I will applaud. It's hard for me to grasp that now in some ways, or it was then, but it's true. And if you think that through and it still bothers you, then your picture of God is far too small because he is glorious and holy and good. And your picture of yourself is way too big. You don't see yourself for the sinner you really are. <coughs> Again, the, the doctrine of hell is one that isn't talked about much in church. But it's probably why we don't see revival the way we should. 
It's probably why we don't see people coming to faith. Because we've softened the holiness and judgment of God. We've softened the doctrine of sin. And so when hell comes around, it seems like, you know what? No, that doesn't seem right. Hell is actually a glorious doctrine. I would go so far as to say, personally, I think the doctrine of hell in one sense is beautiful. And it's beautiful because instead of focusing on the individual, we need to focus on God. And when we see that, we see God for his righteousness, his holiness, his justice. Probably the reason hell bothers so many is because they're focused on the person and not on, the, not on God. But if we focused on God, we would see it for what it is. So to Mark Twain, go to heaven for the climate, go to hell for the company. He'll have plenty of company. That's for sure. But it's not the way he thinks it's going to be. It's definitely not. I don't know what happened to Mark Twain. I don't know if in the, that last moment there was a confession of a profession of faith, maybe. But from what I do know, he didn't. And so I wonder if he thought about that line as he appeared before the judgment seat. I wonder. Because here's the thing once it's all said and done, once you appear before the judgment seat of Christ, it's too late then. It's too late. And so let us see sin for what it is. Let us understand hell for what it is. And let that push us, spur us, compel us, both personally to fix our eyes on Christ, but also to open our mouths and proclaim the good news, proclaim the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ to everybody and anyone. Because this is the reality of the people that we live among, the people we go to school with, people we work with, people within our own families. With that, let's pray. Father God, we come before you now. And Lord, we understand the weightiness of such a doctrine. We understand, Lord, that that sin is horrible. And that hell is horrible, but that you are just and good, Lord. Father, we praise you that you are a good judge that deals with sin. I couldn't imagine a world where crime wasn't punished. I couldn't imagine a world where judges let criminals go. When we hear such things even in our world now, we're troubled. And so, Father, if we know that to be true, let us praise you that you are a holy and just God that sends the wicked to hell for all eternity. And let us, Lord, make sure that we have worked out our salvation with fear and trembling so that we would never hear the words that depart from me, I never knew you. And help us, Lord, open our mouths because our hearts are so burdened by those we know and love that do not know you. Because we do not want this to be their reality. We want them to spend eternity, Lord, in the kingdom of light, not in the domain of darkness. Use us, Lord, mightily to proclaim that message. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.